Hey people, welcome back to Coach Gethin Radio. Joining me today is Martin Rooney. Martin is one of the most successful, if not the most successful, strength and conditioning coach in the UFC. He has coached UFC Hall of Famer, Forrest Griffin. He has coached Jim Miller, a man who has fought the most number of rounds in the UFC. And Frankie Edgar, a man who has fought the most number of minutes in the UFC. He's also written many books, including Coach to Coach, which was released this year. It's a brilliant book. I believe any coach who wants to learn valuable principles should pick it up. On top of that, Martin is also the founder of the world-renowned program Training for Warriors. I'd love to start the episode with a shout-out to Missouri, who is, of course, your pet pig. Uh, <laughs> what is her repertoire of tricks? <laughs> well, hey, for everybody listening, uh, a little history on myself. I am allergic to dogs. And unfortunately, I have four daughters. Now, as you just heard, I have a fifth daughter almost, but to a couple of my daughters also inherited that trait. So we could never have dogs. And uh, I always wanted to know what it was like. And, and I've been lobbying for a really long time for a pet pig. And with all this experience that had happened uh, back in about March, we reserved a pig. We drove all the way out to Missouri, the state of Missouri in the United States to get her. And that's why her name is Miss Zuri. So her name is Zuri. We have a little pig. We've had her for now three months. And it has taken my coaching to another level where right now I'm worried because my kids are in online schooling and the pig is upstairs by herself. And she sometimes tears some things up when she gets ignored too long. But, uh, but she does a ton of tricks, super smart. She, they say the equivalent of about a five-year-old child. And, uh, and she's just put a smile on so many people's faces. And it's kind of funny because I probably would have talked about her if you didn't. But look how it's the first thing that comes up where everybody loves, everybody loves the pet pig. Like everybody in our neighborhood, everybody online. So it's really put a smile not just on our faces, but everybody else's. But for everyone listening, a pig is a lot of work. Like she's been a lot of work and, and I'm glad maybe the silver lining of us, us having to be in our homes, we had a lot more time for her, where if we would have got her and everyone would be in school and I would be traveling, maybe it wouldn't have been fair. So, uh, but she does tons of different tricks, stand, spin, sit. She pushes cars. So if anybody wants to see him, if you go to my Instagram at the Martin Rooney, you'll see the occasional Zuri post. And uh, man, people go crazy for the tricks. She's more, pop- she's more popular than me now. I got to figure it out. <laughs> Amazing. Um, yeah, funny enough. If, if well, when you do come, when you do come to Wales, I bear that in mind. We're actually picking up. Um, yeah, we're picking up a pet puppy on the weekend, so I'll just have to make sure I'm showered off and make sure that you're not allergic to me. When no, no, I mean, meaning, <laughs> I think as I've gotten older, it's gotten much better. But when I was a little kid, yeah, I would get really sick, and you know, and you know, and end up having to go to the doctors for shots and things so yeah it's just something that meaning I could go to someone's house I could pet a dog and then at least wash my hands but I couldn't like have a dog and it's in our house and like then sleeping in our bed that would probably you know kill me over time you know but but so have no fear because as I everyone listening I am dying to get to Wales so I hope everybody enjoys this today so much that we you know because the plan was to come to Wales and now all this happened and uh, I got to get out there and see it. A hundred percent. Be great to have you. Um, so back in April, your book, Coach to Coach, was published here in the UK. What inspired you to write it? 
Oh, well, that's a, yeah. How much time do you have? Right? Well, Hey, so there's a new book, my new book. I have it right here in front of me, coach to coach. And it was a, a real departure for me. So if people have followed my work for the last 20 years, a lot of my work was fitness books, a lot of my work, martial arts, fitness books. So training for warriors, ultimate warrior workouts, warrior cardio. But what I noticed was, is I really dug deep into how I was able to help all those athletes the most. Yes, the training information was important. Yes, I had to know push-ups and I had to know nutrition, but it was the way that I coached those guys. It was the way that I connected with them. It was the enthusiasm that I had every day that I really started to understand. It was the coaching that made the it was the coaching was the difference that made the difference. And I started teaching courses around the world about coaching. And man, everybody loved the courses so much. But at the end of every course, everyone would say, man, coach, you gotta, you gotta write a book about this. You gotta write a book about this. And number one, hey, whenever you tell somebody you gotta write a book about this, that's a big order. Like that's not easy. Like, oh, just go write a book about this. You know, that's that's tough. But then when I really gave it thought and I said, okay, I want to write a book about this, but I don't want to write a textbook on coaching. I don't want to write a manual on coaching. I said, man, what connects most with the people? It's stories. You know, people, oral history and the stories that we've told that have been passed down, listen to this, father to son, husband to wife, you know, mother to daughter, coach to coach, which is where the name came from. I wanted to pass... Uh, down the information of how to be a great coach, but in a story that no one would forget. And then it was like, that made my job even harder. Now I got to write a story and I got to write the book. But I sat down and I really forced myself and I dug in with everything I had and I just wrote like in the zone, like in flow. So if we've got any athletes or martial artists listening and there's just that moment where you, you execute this great throw or this punch or just something that just clicks and it happens, that zen or zone state, I wrote in that state for weeks and weeks. And the minute the book was done, I immediately, I I had no agent, I had no publisher, but I sent it to the top publishing house that I wanted to produce the book. And in one day, instead of usually how people will get hundreds of rejections, in one day they wrote back and said, this thing is amazing, it's the best one we've seen, we gotta have it. And then they fast tracked it and it came out in March in the US, which coincided with the exact moment we went into quarantine, which wasn't, always so great. And then April in the UK and then May in Australia. And man, it's sold over 10,000 copies and, and, and it's just been this incredible thing. But the inspiration started from all the people saying, you gotta do this. Like you gotta, you gotta do more with this. And, uh, and that inspired me to do it. Yeah. I'll I'll be honest. Um, The next question, funny enough, was going to be, how did they end up becoming a fiction? And I just thought, it was so well presented, all the principles. And interestingly enough, I mean, you mentioned the importance of story and that was highlighted in the actual book itself, which I thought was, um, I thought was brilliant. Um, and obviously, there's a, piece of, there's a piece of paper that the old coach passes to Brian, which says enthusiasm. And yeah. as I'm sure people already know, listening to this, you emulate <laughs> enthusiasm. <laughs> so... Um, so I have a tendency for everyone listening. I don't know what it is. People ask me, I, I, I was asked the other day, what's your superpower? And I said, oh, what would my superpower be? It was kind of a neat question. And I said, I think my superpower is I just have the ability, like when people get around me, I get them excited. Or when they hear me talk, they get excited. And I don't know, I just always had that. 
you know, maybe they call it ADD when you're little, but then they call it enthusiasm when you're older. But, uh, but it was, but the book is stories within a story. So it's a big story with stories in the story. And one of the stories that coach is telling right now is about a piece of paper that the old coach gives to the young coach. So here, I cut you off, but I'll let you, you know, you ask it again. Not, not a problem at all. Um, (laughs) So traffic, where was that? I mean, what I was actually going to ask you is um, what drives you and how do you maintain such high energy? Because it's just so, uh, it's so apparent in everything that you write, everything that, um, well, every interview, how do you maintain such a high energy? Yeah, well, well, here's, here's what I would say. Uh, here, I'm going to give everybody the secret. The first thing is, because some people will ask me it, it slightly different. They will say, how do you stay on fire all the time? How do you eat right all the time? How do you always train all the time? And do you know what the answer is? I don't. So I'm not like this all the time. I really am not. I mean, now it has been said, like my judo uh, partners and trainers, when I was uh, really pursuing judo as a big part of my life, they used to say, man, that Martin Rooney, he has two speeds, asleep and ferocious. And, and, you know, so I do believe that. But here's what I would say, and here's the secret. If you want to always be a person with high enthusiasm, you have to be doing whether you call it what you're passionate about or what you love. And uh, so many people just don't do that. So I believe enthusiasm is inside of all of us. Like people can get excited about a new restaurant. People can get excited for a new show on Netflix. People can get so excited about a new pair of shoes that they'll show it off and someone else will go buy it. So everyone has enthusiasm for something and something that they're passionate about. And where I've been very lucky, and I think this is maybe one of the most important things that I ever teach or that I tell to people is... uh, I had other jobs. So I worked in construction. I was once a waiter. I worked in a lab going through college. But hey, then when I graduated school, I became an orthopedic physical therapist. So I was a physio, if that's maybe how they say it in Wales. And uh, I liked it. I liked helping people. I liked the rehabilitation process, but I didn't love it. See, I love fitness. I love athletics. And so really, I wanted to be doing therapy, if you will, but on slightly healthier people. And, uh, and that is where I knew I would be great. And hey, as a therapist for three and a half years, I didn't have this kind of enthusiasm and I didn't have a vein in my neck every time I talked. I did do a good job and I loved the people I worked with. But, I, but something was calling me. It was like hurting me in my stomach. On Mondays, I knew I would go to work and it's not, this isn't what I wanted to be doing. And one day I couldn't take it anymore and I just quit. And everybody thought I was crazy, but I wanted to help create the sports performance movement. This is in the 1990s. It didn't exist yet. I wanted to be involved in athletics and youth athletics and professional athletics. No one was doing that. But you know what? It was the best move I ever made. And ever since, people seem to say I'm the most enthusiastic guy they know. But the secret is not some ability that I have or special about me. The secret is that I had the courage to chase what I love and what I'm passionate about. And I'm challenging everyone listening to do it because what's the worst thing that could happen? See, this is what I wish I could have those three and a half years back. You know what I was afraid of? I was afraid of, well, if I go do this and it doesn't work as if like it's fatal or it's final and no, 
if it didn't work, then I could have just gone back and been a therapist. But at least I gave it a chance. At least I, 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 I tried to see. And it was the best move I ever made. That was over 20 years ago now. And uh, I don't know. So I'm telling everybody, especially at this crazy time in the world, hey, now's a great time to ask yourself, what are you passionate about? What do you really love? What would get you up early and keep you up late? What would be something that you would do even if you didn't get any money for it? And if you know that thing and you can figure out how to pursue that as a career and help other people and that the world is a better place because you did it, then, then you're the real winner regardless of what money you make or anything else. And, uh, and I really consider myself that where I wake up every day and I'm fired up. Like I was fired up today, man, we're gonna, I'm going to get to talk about stuff I really like with a guy in Wales. Like that's super cool. Like, like, or or I could go like dig ditches somewhere for a dollar. Like, no, I'm, I, like, yeah, I could do that too. I got a strong back, but like, that's not what I'm enthusiastic about, you know? So, so ultimately I hope that's a little inspiration for everybody too. But the only reason I can talk about it with confidence is because I did it, but also because I'm getting old now. You know, people may think, hey, I, they hear my enthusiasm. They think, might think I'm younger than I am. But you know what? As I'm approaching a half century, if you know how long that is on earth, like time is my most valuable commodity and I don't want to waste any of it. And I'm definitely not going to waste it being unhappy or doing something I don't like, sacrificing uh, my time and my energy thinking that's the right thing to do. And unfortunately, the world often tells us that. So here's a great line, another one, and then I'll let you ask your next question because I'm just riffing right now. Is uh, you ready for this? There's nothing noble about being uh, uh, poor or like not having money, and there's nothing noble about sacrificing your gifts as if you're going to give that to someone else. And what do I mean by that? I see so many people say, "Oh, I work these jobs that I hate so I can give my kids." a better chance. No, like you're teaching them to go have a job you hate and like, and you're teaching them that like your stuff isn't valuable. How about why not do some job that's so incredible that you're their biggest inspiration and they want to go aspire to that too. And having four daughters, I, I, Hey, I do have to work super hard to be able to provide for them, but I'm going to do it in a way that inspires them to travel the world, inspires them to get the job of their dreams, not to watch their father suffer. Right. Like, and I think we, we romanticize that like, Oh, this guy that, you know, killed himself to like help his kids. Okay. That's yeah, that's cool. But if, but if you didn't have to do that, then man, go chase what you love. You know, I think I'll think you, I think you'd be teaching your kids a way more important lesson. So, so that was a whole, that was a diatribe on, on uh, success, life, passion and everything. And guys, everybody listening, it's easy to understand but I also know it's really hard to do, but I'm challenging you to do it because the last, the worst thing is going to be, you look back on your life. If you're lucky enough to be 80 years old, you're not going to look back and say, man, I wish I would have worked more in that job. I didn't love, you know, what you're going to say is, man, I wish I would have chased this passion. I wish I would have took this opportunity. I wish I would have spent more time in, with my family and my friends and inspiring everybody. And if I could go back in a second, I would do it. And that, if you notice, is a little bit of the theme of the book too. So my new book is about, you know, kind of the old guy making sure the young guy doesn't make the same mistakes he did. So, uh, you know, so it's a big philosophy of mine and uh, hopefully that got everybody amped up and I almost lost my voice. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, I just want to spin off from that because admittedly in the book as well is some instruction of, 
you know, kind of reflecting and actually um, trying to find out what it is you're passionate about. I was wondering, uh, maybe you wish to elaborate on that, or if you'd like to give uh, more of a personal touch as to how you would go about finding your passion if you're not sure what your passion is. Yeah, well, hey, and I've done a lot of work on this. So, hey, for everybody listening too, I also have a podcast called Into the Roar. And it's just a quick 30-minute thing where, you know, in the beginning there were a lot of interviews, but now it's just a 30-minute uh, a topic. And, and that was one of the topics. Like, well, how do you find your passion? How do you know what it is? And, uh, and just some of the simple ideas that I hinted at, I would ask everybody listening to, you know, write down a few questions. Like, you know, <laughs> first one would be, Hey, what am I passionate about? And maybe just write some things down. It could be anything, right? A lot of people are just even afraid to write that down. But then the next one might be, um, if I could spend a perfect day, what would I be doing? Like, what would my perfect day look like? And most people are too afraid to write those things down too. It's almost incredible that that takes courage to admit those things to yourself, especially if they're not happening now. And then, like I said before too is, hey, what would I do even if I didn't get paid for it? Like what would be something that I would do even if I wasn't being paid for it? And as you start to write all these answers, you're going to start to see certain things intersect. You know, there'll be like an intersection, like, like what happened with me? Like, wow, what do I really love? Like I love sports. Like I really do. Like I love sports and athletics and movement and the expression of power and fitness and training. And then as I thought about it more, like, Hey, what would I do? even if I got no money for it. It's like, I'd love to just be around athletes and coaching. Like, I just love coaching. And actually, I've been the high school and middle school track coach for the last six years. I don't get paid to do that, but I love it. And it's like my time when, like, man, I, I don't know. I zone out and it's, and it's like I'm at peace, you know? And now, hey, and I'm not advising go do things for nothing, but what I am showing everybody too is I do do things for nothing because of how hard I chase my passions. And uh, you know what? I've helped so many kids. And over the years of all the people that I've helped, those emails that you get 10 years later of the difference you made in somebody's life because you were so passionate about something, it's worth it. You know, and uh, I don't know. And I, and I think everybody should enjoy what that feels like to have done that for somebody else. So, so those would be three simple, quick questions you could ask. And I'm challenging everybody. See, look, I just gave you an action item. Don't nod your head and say, yeah, that makes sense. I know. No, you have to do it or it doesn't work. So I'm challenging everybody. Write down. Just free flow. What are you most passionate about? Then, hey, uh, you know what? I forget even what the second one, as I said, was what now. Like either what is your, what, oh, what would be a perfect day or what would be an incredible day or week? What, how would that look? And then the last one would be what would you do as a career, even if you weren't paid for it, but you got to have that career? And if you find some commonalities and some themes there, and then you also find that you're not chasing that in any way, but you know that subliminally, then you're probably hurting yourself. And I advise you, even if it's in the evenings to read about it, even if it's to go to a weekend course about it, get started. That's what I did. I didn't just quit with no plan. I started going to courses. I started reading everything I could. I started to realize everything that I was doing was on the side was athletics. And then I wanted to just make my hobby my life. And that's kind of what I did. And, and uh, again, I'll say it again, best move I ever made. And if I hadn't have, man, I'd, I would probably be an, a less enthusiastic and pretty unhappy guy right now. So, and if anyone is listening and is a little less enthusiastic or not feeling so happy, 
the odds are you're either not chasing what you're passionate about or you're not surrounding yourself with the right people. That's about it. So uh, hopefully that's a good answer for that one. <laughs> yeah, phenomenal answer. I, um, yeah, that was brilliant. Um, obviously, the answer is only as good as the question. So asking what you're passionate about, like giving yourself those questions, that's, um, that's incredible. Um, Kevin, on the topic of reflection, um, the coach of the book, Brian, uh, was presented with a book in which he was to write down, obviously, his best ideas as a coach. I'm very much into journaling myself, and I was wondering if you have your own personal uh, practice when it comes to journaling, if you keep a journal, and if so, um, how do you go about reflecting in that journal? You're going to like this. Well, and, and it's interesting that you bring this up because uh, here's what I would say. So first answer, do I journal? Yes, absolutely, and I think it's super important. Have I journaled? lately and watch this answer ready no and let me explain why um i have kept a journal are you ready for this it's pretty incredible i have to take a picture of it someday i have about 30 full journal books filled filled for the last almost 30 years so i started journaling when i made the u.s bobsled team in the uh mid 1990s so we're at, we're at 25 years of journaling that's when I started. I bought a book and I was writing down my experiences because I was no longer in school. And it was almost like, and I, I, I don't know, I felt this need to write. So I wanted to not only, this is an important word, not only journal, but I wanted to chronicle. I wanted to document the things that I had done. Because what I said was, imagine if I could have the journals of my great, great grandfather and what he saw and who he was and where he went and what he did. And that would be, that'd be a gift. It'd be priceless. I, 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 if someone said to me right now, Martin, what would you pay for that? I'd say I'd pay anything, but unfortunately it doesn't exist. And, uh, but here's how I did it. I have been traveling just about every week presenting somewhere in the world for the last 20 years. And every time I get on a plane, I write where my life is since the last time I entered in the journal, where I'm going, what I want to do, what I want to achieve, and almost like the checkpoints in my life. And then on the way home, I would also then write what happened on that trip and what I experienced and how I grew and what I saw and what I was thinking. And uh, those leaving on a plane and coming back on a plane journaling turned into 20 books filled. Uh, you know, and remember, I've been to over 35 countries in the last, you know, decade, uh, you know, uh, you know 100,000 miles a year flown every year, hundreds of flights. So these were hundreds of journal entries, you know, every year for 20 years. So thousands of journal entries. And uh, all those books sit upstairs. And I just have this vision that someday, even if it's when I'm an old man, that I can go back and read them all again and kind of relive it and just be like, oh yeah, remember that or remember that detail or remember where I went or even better that my children someday and their children's children when I'm gone, maybe they could read the greatest things of what, you know, that like the blood that courses through their veins, who was, who were they and, and where did they come from? I always wanted them to have it, but here's the interesting thing by you answer, asking that question. I've only journaled twice in the last six months and that was to go corner those two UFC fights that I cornered. And even that was scary and risky because, you know, we're wearing a mask. I had to take six Corona tests and I was definitely nervous and everything else, but it's sad that, yeah, I guess it kind of stopped that practice a little bit because no one's traveling, you know? So I'm, 
I'm definitely dying to be traveling. But so the answer is yes, I always journal. I think it's important to reflect. It also shows you how far you've come and what you've done and who you are and where you're going. But also, instead of just journaling, think of it as chronicling for the future because somebody could benefit from something that you've either learned or know. And it might even be a person you don't even know yet. So a great line that I always use when I would do it, when people, my wife would always say, why are you doing that? It takes so much time. Why don't you just like go to sleep on the plane? You know, cause I write it. It's still handwritten. I believe there's a connection between the hand and the, and the, 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 the psyche. And, uh, and it does take a long time. Cause if people haven't been writing in a while, I type more, a lot more than I write, man, your hand will hurt. It's like, you know, it's hard. Your penmanship, my penmanship is not as good. It's hard to read now, but, uh, but, I'm planting trees that I may never see, you know? So like every time I write something down in ink, maybe there's a great, great grandkid that I'll never have met that'll be reading about like maybe this guy that could come, maybe become her inspiration or hero. And she also knows that she's honoring him by doing something great too. So uh, I started thinking like that a long time ago. And maybe the big lesson too, is, and I talk to my daughter about this a lot, my oldest, who's a really great athlete, is uh, a little on top of a little on top of a little eventually becomes a lot. Every one of those two or three or four or five page journal entries, that doesn't seem like much, but a few thousand of them adds up to 5,000 written pages. You know, so just like every workout, every time you eat the right food, every time you have a positive thought in your head, each one of those things, it, it, it accumulates, you know, it grows, it, it compounds until now when I look at myself, yeah, I'm a product of the last, well, really almost 50 years of what I've done, but in particular, the last 25 in my career and what I've done, I'm a product of that. And, and guys, anybody listening, if you don't have the health you want, if you don't have the career you want, if you don't have the money you want, you have not spent each one of those days wisely enough and let it compound into what you want. And uh, my advice would be to decide what that is. We already told you that. Write that down and then start start compounding, man. Write down the first word. Eat the you know, next meal. Make it a good meal. Tonight, get a good night's sleep. Put the bottle down. And man, if you do those things long enough and hard enough, the world can be yours. And I, I really believe that. And, uh, and we're going to be making a really cool announcement very soon about my daughter. And she's going to be the next uh, piece of the Rooney generation to prove it. Oh, well, okay. There's a, drum, there's, a, there's a drum roll yeah. going on here. There's a drum roll going. <laughs> yeah. We got one week, one week we will, we will be announcing. So it's going to be pretty cool. Oof. Anticipation, <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wicked. Okay. Um, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to go um, and read a quick quote from um, Coach to Coach. I don't know if I wrote it down perfectly word for word, but you mentioned, obviously, the importance of blaming yourself when things go wrong and praising others when things go right. Um, personally, I think that's a terrific practice. And at the same time, I think it could take some thick skin in order to practice this. So how does someone develop the emotional resilience and the mental discipline to master this practice. Yep. And, and like I said, everything in the book is, and it's really neat how in such an easy to read story, many people say they read it in one or two sittings, but then so many people then tell me, and I haven't read a book in years. And then they say, and I read it again to pull out the, the gold. So it definitely did what I wanted it to do. 
but it also encapsulated all my greatest lessons as a coach. So I want everybody listening to first understand, because you know what I think your question is great is like, how do you do that? That's pretty tough. And uh, you're absolutely right. And do you know the only reason I learned it or how I know those things? It's not because I did it well and I was a good, I just was always a great coach. It's because I did it so wrong that I had to learn the hard way because there were so many times that I was blaming everybody else when they didn't do good. And, but when, they would do, when someone would do great, I would only accept the credit. And what I realized was that made me less popular. It hurt many relationships. And then I started to realize that a coach's job, this is pretty cool, you ready? A coach's job is not to get pats on the back, it's to give them. And I started to realize that you're only stronger when you give the credit to someone else. And, uh, and when I started using one really important word, or it, wait, yeah, three words here, you know, cause you know how there's all these different word things in there. This isn't in the book, I don't think, but three very powerful words. If you want to improve your relationships is it's my fault. So even with my daughter, I remember speaking of her, like, breaking things down for her. Like there was times she didn't do so great and she's so upset and she feels like she's let everybody down or something like that. And I say, Hey, that's my fault. And she, and I can remember her looking up like what? And it's like, yeah, that's my fault. I didn't prepare you right. I didn't do all the things that should have happened. You don't accept any blame for this. This is my fault. And I would just watch the anxiety and stress leave her. She felt better. It taught me that there were more things I had to be better as a coach. And, uh, but ultimately that, and then when she would do great, that's when you say you did it. Like, so, hey, last night we had a very special moment as father and daughter. That's what the announcement will be about next week. And I said, you did it. Like, you did this. You did it. You see, like, all that work, all the things you did, you did it. Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. For the last 17 years, I've been doing a lot of work, too. Like, I've been, you know, I've been on, like, holy cow, I feel like I did it. But no, you say you did it. Like you did it. You, that great coach gives the credit, but if it wouldn't have happened, I'm ready. My back is strong enough. I'm ready to shoulder the blame and say, no, that's not you. I blew it. Like that's my fault. And, uh, and to answer your question, it takes maturity. It takes first hearing it and learning it and trying to practice that. And then it just takes experience and seeing the opportunities when it is available to do those things. So as a parent, you know, because I think parent, teacher, coach, sensei, those words are all interchangeable. And uh, it is our job, if we're the coach for someone else, it's our job to help them succeed. And if it doesn't happen, you have to be ready to accept the responsibility just as much as when it does. Because I think too many people, oh, well, here'd be a good example. In the fitness industry, everybody puts up transformation pictures. Look what I did. This person lost 100 you know, pounds or whatever. I don't know if you guys use stones. Like, this person lost 10 stone. This person lost this many kilos. La, la, la. I never see somebody put a picture up where the person got worse. I never see a person put a picture up where the person gained weight. You know, because it's almost like if that happens, it's their fault. But if something good happens, it's my fault, right? And uh, I think we just have to understand that. You know, hey, a great... Tale of two fights. Jim Miller, he has the most fights in UFC history. I cornered him two fights ago, about a month and a half ago. He won. And man, I posted that everywhere. And I was so excited and I was so fired up. And in this last fight, which was a war, he lost a decision, close decision. And you know what? And I posted it up and I put the pictures up and, and, and it was like, hey man, and I'm, I had to show I'm part of both of those. Like that's my, that's my responsibility too. And you know what? It was hard. 
it's hard to do that. You know, you know, man, I don't know. You know, it's almost like you don't want to admit defeat or that you could have been better, but you know what? I'm not afraid of that anymore. And that picture that I put up where he was kind of beat up and we were sharing a beer after the fight, that one had more likes than the picture when he won. So, so yeah. it's kind of like, I don't know, like, it's just a very important lesson. I call it in the book, which way you're pointing your finger, right? Like, so if every time something's good is happening, you're pointing at yourself. And when anything bad happens, you point at everybody else, especially during these times of challenge right now. Like for instance, in my training for warriors network with hundreds of gyms around the world, um, this has been a very trying time for me as a coach and a leader because I have to accept responsibility when a lot of our guys aren't doing well, even if it may seem that it's out of my control. But if, hey, some of our guys are doing great and I'm going to accept that responsibility, then I'm going to point the blame at myself when people don't do well too. And you know what? It hurts. It's hard, but you grow. And uh, hopefully that answers it a little bit. And, and again, guys, hopefully you do get the book because – there's so much depth in there. You can see the stuff that we're talking about now. That's just scraping the surface of what's in this book. I consider it like my greatest work and a gift to everybody. If you really read it like with the depth, like I see you did with getting that information out of there. So hopefully, again, I'm ranting, but I hope everybody's enjoying these answers. No, um, very, a very valuable rant nevertheless. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that was brilliant. And yeah, uh, I caught that post with Jim Miller. And, you know, if anything, it just shows how humble you are as opposed to going the other way. Um, and I think for coaches as well, it's also important not just to celebrate weight loss. I tried to celebrate, for example, has someone improved their relationship with food? Has someone demonstrated more self-compassion? And I think that sort of thing coming up in social media as well. Um, oh, yeah. Obviously, that's a, that's a side topic, obviously, from... Um, what we were just talking about, which was accountability. Um, obviously, you've already kind of touched on uh, your MMA career. Um, I'm just very curious as to how you'd go about training an, af- uh, an athlete when it comes to both static strength and explosive strength. Um, the reason being, obviously, mixed martial art has a lot of grappling. I do taekwondo, and I've trained a lot of taekwondo fighters, which involves a lot of explosive work, but not so much static strength. So how do you go about catering for both static strength and explosive strength when coming about a program? Yeah, well, so to make it easy, I guess, and that's what I like to do. I think I talk about it in the book too, is uh, the master of something doesn't make it that something more complex. They make it simple to understand. So even when we start to use static and explosive, here's my simple, I guess, philosophy. If you were going to build an athlete at the base You've got to have the base, whether you call them biomotor characteristics or just characteristics. So I would want my athlete at maximal strength, in particular relative strength, so how strong they are for their body weight. So what does that mean is that their nutrition would also have to be great. I would want as much muscle mass and as little body fat at the weight class where they compete. I would want them to have a very strong aerobic base too. Now, once I've got that aerobic base, they're at the right body composition, which means they've got to have good habits, how they eat and, and how they sleep. You know, that all comes together. Um, and they were at the right strength. Now, on top of that base, now maybe I would start entertaining the ideas of power or explosiveness or static strength uh, 
And then, you know, but even that might even be one more level up because those are very high end ideas. So do you see how building of an athlete can take many years before we start to entertain some of those ideas? And I think what happens or the mistake that many people make is they, they try to build a structure on top of a very weak foundation. So let's say somebody says, oh, I want to be an MMA. And they, they haven't really trained very long. They have not strength trained very long. So they don't have a good base level of strength. And now they're trying to do static work and explosive work. Well, by definition, power is strength times speed. So if you have a very low strength aspect you know, or uh, variable that is in that product, then no matter what, your power is going to be low. So, so do you see what I mean that I would first say, hey, are you at, is your diet as good as it could be? Are you as strong as you could be for your body weight? Is your body composition as good as it could be? Is your aerobic capacity as good as it could be? And then now let's add these fancy things on top. So a great line that I got from my Russian coach, which you might like, and I think everyone will appreciate is don't put on your tie before you put on your shirt. Right. So, so meaning, do you see how silly you look when you're just wearing a tie and no shirt? And that's what people look like when they're trying to do crazy advanced exercises or talk about crazy nutritional supplements. And they don't, they don't, they've never really trained and they don't eat right. And it's the same idea there. So I would say that's still like still static strength for grappling uh, events or uh, uh, events that require grappling, absolutely. Did we work on that stuff? Without a doubt, we would do specific holds, we would do isometric work, but this was after years and years and years of deep training with these guys to kind of put that cherry on top. And, uh, and if you never got there and didn't have the time for it, another part of my personal philosophy would be to develop those aspects in the actual art that you use. So I would say, say for instance, if, you know, and I trained a lot of Taekwondo guys if you, and girls, if you were specifically say training for Taekwondo or Judo, these high velocity power events, I would say I would still work way more on strength, composition and capacity. But then in your Judo training, that's where you're going to be doing that power work. That's where you're going to be applying that force. So, you know, and with your kicks and your strikes and your punches. So let's work it there versus I think too many people would start to make exercises look kind of like the martial art in the gym, but then they forgot why they were in the gym. So remember, you're in the gym to get stronger and faster and, 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 and more explosive, but on the mats and the tatamis are where you should be expressing that power in your technique. So for instance, I, don't, I never made our guys hold weights and punch with weights or, no man, go, go do your striking work, but in the gym, we're gonna get strong. So Jim Miller, for instance, he once had a 500-pound deadlift. He was squatting 315 in the hole. He could sprint like crazy. And then he would just take that over, cross that over to his training and crush guys, you know? So, and that has led to his longevity of the most fights in UFC history. So it's, uh, yeah, so I'm not just talking theory here. I'm talking experience and practice with the best guys. And hopefully that was a I don't know, a cool, like a different spin for everybody to hear it. So guys, use the gym for what the gym is for and make sure you've built a base so wide that the structure can go high. And then when you are trying to express those powers specifically for your art, 
use that in your training. See, I mean, I think the mistake is then guys go to train and all they do is randori or all they do is spar and then they forgot all the technical work too. So there's also a base that needs to be built there as well, you know? And, uh, and if you've done that, man, then you're going to, you're going to be a more complete martial artist and athlete. So, yeah, incredible. Funny enough, right? One of the questions <laughs> I was going to ask, and I'm so thankful that you've already answered it. Because um, this is a common dojo argument. Lift lighter weights quickly versus lift, he- uh, lift heavy and keep the speed work on the mats. Um, what's more conducive to speed development or power development of a fighter? Maximal strength is, well, strength yeah. is the master component of fitness in which all others yeah, develop. Yeah. That's why I pretty much learned. It, it's a, yeah, you could call it a cornerstone. And again, it, it's, it's so simple. People might want to try to argue it, but there are so many great examples. For instance, even just watch this little philosophy I have where strength is related to endurance. So say you are, you're, uh, say my 100% of strength is only your 80%. So if we grappled and we're in this clinch, and you're using 80% and I'm using 100%, who's going to get tired first? Who's, who's, who's going to get tired first? Yeah, the, uh, obviously the, per- the person using... The yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Me. The, the, the one that's using more energy is going to get more mm. tired. So strength is related to endurance. Strength is related to power. Strength is related to... And not only that, everybody can recognize it. If anyone has grappled, no one ever says... I've never seen anybody go, wow, that guy feels really fast. No, what they say is, holy cow, that guy feels really strong. Like that guy is strong. It's like, I feel like I'm up against steel cables. And why? Because it's sapping their energy as the other person is just much stronger than them. So no one is ever going to say you're too strong, right? Like, so I can never tell you, Hey man, you're just too strong. Don't, you know, like you don't get any stronger. And I think strength is this commodity that many people skip. Oh, I'm a martial artist. So yeah, I'm going to train real light. And, and, uh, well then don't even train, you know, it's no sense in even training. So, so strength training, what I'm saying by design would be not ma- It doesn't have to be maximal, but sh- there should be strength gains and hypertrophy work to increase the cross-sectional area, which is related to strength gains, which now with that strength, you can couple that with speed to have more power. And you can also overpower people, which makes them more tired, which that's the coolest way I ever said that. So somebody should write that down. Boom. <laughs> you hear to hear first, everyone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. So what did I say? It was strength, strength, you know, strength, you know, move it faster. You have more power. But then when you have more strength, you overpower someone, which leads to more endurance or apparent endurance. So, uh, you know, for instance, I have a seven-year-old. She can use her maximal strength against my leg. She's going to wear herself out, fall on the floor, and I'm not tired at all. And the only reason is because I'm stronger, you know, so – you know, when you see in those elite, you know, or uh, extreme examples, then it should really make sense. Okay. And if nobody believes it, I also, we did this for the last 20 years with guys like Frankie Edgar, uh, the Gracie family, you know, current stars like Jim Miller, and it, and it didn't fail us. And Frankie has the most minutes in UFC history. Jim has the most fights and submission attempts in UFC history. I don't know. It's work. It, yeah. it was working. <laughs> yeah, Forrest Griffin, uh, USC Hall of Famer. Oh yeah, like yeah. and I just talk, I talk to I talk to him every week and and it's just uh yeah like hey he wasn't the most 
te- over technical guy, but he was what, you know, he had an attention to every area in fitness. And now he's running the UFC performance Institute. So now he's in charge of so much of this stuff for the fighters of the future. And, and again, it's, it's their philosophy as well. So super cool stuff. But again, I'm just saying that not to impress any of the listeners, but impress upon you. What I'm saying is not theory. I don't sit in an, in an ivory tower and, and spit stuff down on people. My boots are on the ground and have been in the trenches for 20 years. And uh, the stuff that I'm talking about, I only learned it by making mistakes. So did I try it all to find out what works? Yes, but I'm sharing it with you now so you don't have to try it all. You can do the right thing and not waste 10 years. So hopefully, whether anybody likes to hear it or not, because it might not be their personal preference, hey, I'm sorry, but it's the truth. <laughs> the other thing I'm quite curious about as well, I mean, when it comes to strength, um, I think it's Ryan Flaherty uh, of Nike says he tries to get his athletes to deadlift up to like uh, 230% of their body weight, I believe. And I was just wondering, if you had um, a relatively new adult mixed martial artist in front of you, what would you encourage them to lift in relation to their body weight and what specific lifts should they be focused on? Yeah. Well, I think obviously at the base work, some of the biggest lifts, as long as it's safe. Now, remember now we can get deeper here because it'd be easy for me to say, and Hey, have I had most of my guys deadlift? Of course. But remember being an orthopedic therapist, I also understand not, and a good friend of Stuart McGill's, if anybody knows his work, Hey, not everybody's back is designed to deadlift. Not everybody has the same angles, origins, insertions, everything. And that may not be a lift for everyone. And I don't think you can just give a percentage. For instance, Jim Miller, remember when he was 160 pounds deadlifting 500 and something, he's at, I guess that's 300% over. But what I would say is he did what we could do in training. I never set a, a limit, but I don't think that there's something wrong there, but I don't think there's magic numbers that work across the board for everyone. Everyone is individual and everybody can do different things. So that being said, of course, major compound lifts where you can get the most. Because do not forget, mixed martial artists have so much other training they have to do. A lot of that training is damaging. It's very tough to fit in work. So compound lifts that you get the most strength potential gains for, for your buck. For instance, bicep curls are great, but they're working a lot less musculature than a deadlift, a lot less musculature than a bench press, a lot less musculature than a chin-up. And yet you can still address some of those muscles. So I would say bigger lifts and then uh, not super low repetitions, but also not super high, but also depending on where we are in the training cycle. But I never... Yeah, I didn't have like benchmarks like that, like, oh, lift to here and you've made it. Because I guess for, say, a Jim Miller at 230%, say he weighed 160, 320, you know, so now say 350, that would still be a great deadlift. But say he did that and that was very easy for him, which, by the way, you know, I had a number of national records for my age group in deadlifting. So maybe I, maybe my deadlift perception is very different than this other guy you're talking about. Because I used to train with 700-pound deadlifters, as you've seen the videos So I also believe strength is perception. So maybe my perception was higher, but at the same time, I understand that there's risk and reward. And now as Jim has gotten older, we do not try to attain those numbers anymore. So it's also, again, very individual. So wait, is it still 230 if the guy's 39 years old versus he's 21 years old? So I'm 
not going against what he says. I think he's, he's got a cool idea there. But what I would say is the numbers should be very individual to each person, or at least there are some benchmarks. And, uh, and hey, those benchmarks are great. Like, hey, bench your body weight for 10, or can you do 10 chin-ups or 20 chin-ups? Like, hey, at least you have some standards, but there will be people that exceed them, and then there will be people that can't do them because of maybe injury or anatomical issues, and you got to be smart about that. So uh, I guess that would be my take, walking the fence, like never really answering it. But remember, here will be the ultimate answer for almost everything, strength and conditioning. You ready? It's two words. It depends. So do you see how if you say, hey, is 230% good? Well, yeah, but it depends. Hey, is 300% good? Yeah, but it depends. Is 10 reps good? Uh, It depends. And then you got to go into all the things that it is dependent on. And if you pass those criteria, then yes, the number works. If it doesn't, then you don't. You know, so if Frankie has an injured back, then we're not worried about 230%. You know, or if Jim has now just turned 37, maybe we have, you know, maybe, hey, the numbers change, you know, as people age. Or what if he's 40? You know, remember when Randy Couture was 46? Does he still have to be at 230%? Maybe not. So, you know, again, good benchmarks. But what I would say is everybody is an individual. And whenever you try to smash the square peg into the round hole, things become dangerous for somebody, right? And somebody's getting better and maybe somebody isn't. So my job as a coach is to get everyone to their maximal potential. So I look at them as individuals, not as machines, if that makes sense. So some, some cool ideas, right? So hopefully, hopefully, and, and again, and I'm just spitting philosophy. I can be wrong. I don't know everything, but those, some of the stuff that I'm speaking from is from experience, but also what I believe, right? And I'm also not saying anyone else is wrong. Everybody has their philosophy. And that's what makes training so great to talk about because then it stimulates everybody into either provocative questions and answers or to grow to another level by thinking about something differently. So hopefully that helps. Yeah, no, that's, um, yeah, amazing trail of thought. No, seriously, um, that was uh, obviously very useful because, I mean, I obviously love looking at the other side of things. When we had uh, Tony Gentlecaller on, he was talking about um, about hip alignment, well, people's hips, and it's not only the case of your hip would be different to mine. My left hip would be different to my right hip, and it's based on, like, the depth of the hip, the size of the uh, femoral head, and the way the neck points out, and that could completely change the way I squat to the point that my left leg doesn't necessarily look like my right. And that really made me think um, long and hard about the way I'm squatting. And I played about with it um, yeah. a lot well, in the and, gym. And, and, and that's just the, the femur, which, hey, guys, and what we're talking about there, when you look at some of that stuff, it'll freak you out with the angle of the femoral neck and, and, and just the depth of the acetabulum and like there, or acetabulum, depending on what, how we say it, just like, I guess, vitamin, vitamin. But uh, <laughs> these are all... Like again, and that's why it's fun to get really deep into training, but hey, there are some people that just shouldn't squat deep and there are some people that maybe shouldn't squat at all. And just like now when you get into the, the spine and the vertebral column, and is it, is it a cable or is it a, a stacked up mess where there are people that shouldn't deadlift or, you know, hey, remember when the kettlebell was like, it became the, it almost became the CBD of 20 years ago, you know, meaning like whatever that is now, every, you know, CBD, give it to your dog, give it to everything on earth. As soon as something becomes a, a, a panacea for everything, I think it's dangerous. And then, yeah, like, Hey, not everybody should be swinging kettlebells 
Like that can bug your back. That could maybe injure someone. So understanding that I think is the main point is everyone is individual and you need to know what works for you. And if, and hey, if you can't squat, then maybe you can single leg squat. If you can't squat, then you can deadlift. If you can't squat, maybe you can lunge. There, are, there is always, or a barbell hip thrust or something, there's always an alternative where I want everybody listening, don't hurt yourself with an exercise that you know is hurting you just because that's what everyone does. And uh, for instance, myself, uh, you ready? This is pretty interesting. Because of all my judo work, grappling, all my athletic career, I'm pretty sure I probably have a, a labrum issue in my right shoulder. When I bench press, I'm a very strong bencher. I, that was probably my best lift of all my lifts. If you look at percentage of body weight and where I ranked in the world in certain organizations. And, uh, but, and my overhead press is very, very strong. But if I incline press, it kills my shoulder. Like incline pressing really hurts my shoulder. And do you know what I was always doing? I was always incline pressing because everybody else was. So I, I just, I would just do it. No, my shoulder was going to kill me for a few days and then I would do it again. And then, you know what? I said, wait a minute, everything's going great. Maybe I don't have to incline press that. There's something about that angle that is really hurting me. And I'll say this, I don't incline press. So that would be one example. I do not incline press, but I have my athletes incline press. And if it doesn't bother them, then we go for it. And uh, so that is in particular one lift that I do not do because there is something anatomical that it really bothers me. But I made the mistake of doing it a lot because I felt like every, that's what you should do. And uh, so, but what I'm saying is, but I always, I can find an alternative and still get the result I want without injuring myself. And uh, that may be a great thing to pull out of all this stuff that we're talking about now, which is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, incredible. And like obviously playing about with uh, variations, I suppose this, this is probably going to be a little bit of um, a selfish question. The one thing I've always struggled with, uh, well, not always, but for a number of years is, is going overhead. Um, old injury. I took a kick. I took a kick in the shoulder. Admittedly, didn't see to it until long after the injury actually happened, and ever since, trying to go overhead um, has always been quite aggravating. I'm I'm just curious, what would your take be on looking at alternative exercises? Well, and definitely, definitely, because it's been a long time. And remember, it may just the first thing might be. First, it's alternative stuff, and obviously the basics, like could it be rotator cuff work? Could it be lat work? Could it be rhomboid work? You know, really the traps, like making sure, one, that there is not an asymmetry present. So that's something also very important is, hey, everyone, just like you just said, one hip could be different than the, another. That's called an asymmetry. And what are high predictors of uh, injury are asymmetries. So first, you would want to make sure, hey, can I make them as symmetrical as possible, maybe in all the musculature around it? Because to now do an overhead press, but one shoulder is much weaker than the other just from disuse for a long time, that may be the worst exercise. But maybe you could switch to dumbbells. Maybe you could, uh, but also first do accessory lifts, really building up that shoulder until you build it back. But it also could be starting light enough that even though it doesn't challenge your left shoulder, it still continues to develop the right and really put in work over time. But if any, all of those failed, what I would tell you is you can live without the overhead press. Like, you know, and also it may be a mobility issue by using it less. Now you don't have the mobility and overhead press work requires a lot of mobility. That's why a lot of my older athletes, that's one of the exercises that also gets removed 
because shoulder uh, mobility begins to decrease, just like hip mobility for the squat, and then I don't ask for the same range of motions anymore. So remember, most people, 99.9999% of the population of the world can live without overhead pressing. You know, just like they can live without Olympic lifts, just like they can live without uh, ass to grass squats. You know, like it's all these things that we say are cool, but you can find alternatives that are still safe for what you need. And I would probably say that if you want to be super successful in Taekwondo, the overhead press is not the is not going to be the determinant of whether that happens or not. But I would say your shoulder health is, and you need to make sure that you maintain that. So I would say you need to find how to train that shoulder and re-strengthen it and get the mobility back. But if overhead press is not that lift, I would avoid it and do the things that you can, right? So hopefully that's a, you know, it takes the pressure off, right? You see how you might be like, man, I got overhead press, got overhead press. Well, why? Oh, well, that's what a lot of people do. But yeah, a lot of top Taekwondo guys, is that what they do? And it's like, well, no. And then, and then you find what does work and you go for it, you know? Yes, it's quite relieving, isn't it? Because obviously you're taking away that, pol- that polarized thinking of, oh, I have to do this, I have to do that. Um, well, that's where I was with the incline press. It was like, it was like you have to do that. If you want to be a great bencher, you have to do that. And now I'm just smart enough. And maybe this is a time to talk about this quick. And I know we're, we're going pretty long here, but hopefully everyone is enjoying this and is stimulated. And if you are and you write coach and tell them how great it was, maybe we do another one because there's so much to cover. But maybe one big thing to also cover is guys injury when there is injury my secret has always been that I just train around the injury so I I wish I could say I never got injured I can't but I can say I never stopped training and by always training around things I was always still moving forward even when injuries happen and then and making sure that you notice what you said in your story was I got hurt and I went way too long without doing something about it so guys when there is an injury you have to do something about it, but you should also always be training about it. Like, so when I see somebody, they'll break their pinky finger and then they don't train for five months, anything. And it's like, no, if I broke my pinky finger, I'm training 99.9% of my body around the pinky finger, right? So, so it's just, there is always a, a way to continue to keep moving forward. And, and uh, because the older you get, the more time you take away it's going to take twice as much time to get it back if you even get it back at all. So that would be another little cool piece of advice since we're on the topic. Can I step it back uh, into my last question about uh, strength and conditioning really for a UFC fighter? I'm just curious, obviously you're a part of a larger team. So obviously uh, Jim would have his coaches for grappling, his coaches for striking. And I was wondering as a strength and conditioning coach, how do you, go in and be a part of this larger team? Well, I think, you know, obviously my answer will be different maybe than for some, like being one of the, you know, I consider myself the first guy that ever did this, you know, in the industry. So when I became the, I guess, de facto strength and conditioning coach for team Henzo Gracie in like 1997, 98, um, there was no one else doing it. So we were pioneering everything, but also being a purple belt in jujitsu, a black belt in judo, having trained alongside these guys in MMA and around the world and in so many different martial arts. I think that has garnered me a level of respect in all the areas, as well as, you know, a degree in therapy, a degree in exercise science, a master's degree in health that 
I think the nutritionists know I know what I'm talking about. The grappling coaches know I know what I'm talking about. You know, and that's why I've had the luxury to corner these guys as well. You know, be there in the corner at the time when it counts the most. So for me, I've always tried to help even almost organize it or manage it for for the guys. Whereas my advice, though, because what I see for many people coming up in the game now is that things are still very disorganized. So the strength guy doesn't know the Muay Thai guy and the Muay Thai guy doesn't know the nutritionist and the nutritionist doesn't know the grappling coach. And, uh, and instead, every one of those guys is making the, the fighter themselves do way too much and, uh, and it's not working in concert. You know, so it'll be like a fighter leaves his strength and condition and then goes and gets his ass kicked by the Muay Thai guy who's making him do chin-ups and push-ups when no, you should be teaching that guy Muay Thai. So I think somehow the fighter of the future still needs to have a, a true camp and team all working together. But I do know because my finger is on the pulse of the sport that that still doesn't, in many cases, doesn't exist. And because most guys don't make any money, uh, it's hard to have that exist too. And I'm aware of that. So say a Frankie Edgar, he has that. But Frankie Edgar has been a top level fighter for so long and now, uh, you know, generates enough money to make that happen for himself. Where I think if you're a fighter coming up, you got to figure out how to build your team and that that team is all working together. And if you could uh, create that scenario, you're going to have a, a way better thing. But back to the question too, but the strength guy, just like every other coach, should be very open to the ideas of the other one versus you're coming in and you're the boss and everybody wants to be the chief. Because man, if there's too many chiefs, and not enough Indians, it's all going to go wrong. And, and uh, that's just a saying in uh, America that, that we always say. Unfortunately, hopefully that, you know, I, sorry I said that. That's not probably a politically correct thing to say. But using it as, hey, if everybody's trying to be the boss and nobody is working together and knowing that they work for the fighter not to try to get the credit for themselves, then uh, things are not going to go great and you forgot what you were doing it for. So... That would be my, uh, again, long answer on that. Amazing. Um, ego is the enemy, right? I guess yeah, that's uh, how you put it. Amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, kind of like on the back end, uh, just another question slipped to mind. Do you have a preferred periodization model for working with a mixed martial artist? No, I mean, here's the thing. Like everything, you know, when you go back to Bampa's work, all the way back to that, if we're going to say he originated the idea, which – it may not be him, but he at least uh, got it publicized the most. You know, hey, strength phase, hypertrophy phase, power phase. All those are great in theory. And, and, I, and, and in a perfect world, if you were in a lab and, and a guy knew, it, you know, how long he would fight and you had him since he was 10 years old and all these things, I think there is a lot of merit to that. But, guys, I live in the real world. Jim Miller takes fights on two weeks' notice. So our big model is always be ready. So we're always working on strength. We're always trying to continue to build that base. We're always trying to uh, have a cardiovascular base going so that whenever he would get a call, which was always his MO, you know, his last fight, he took on two weeks notice. And unfortunately, and I never want to make excuses, but he, he did not have a camp at all. And two weeks notice is not enough time. And his physical conditioning, you know, it was apparent that that was the reason he didn't win the fight. And hey, I accept responsibility for that. But in a time of COVID and 
for everybody that doesn't know, he has Lyme disease too, which we're still trying to figure out, which is really uh, throwing a monkey wrench in there. The stuff that he's been able to do through all of this has been incredible. But what I would say is, how could, you know, how do you periodize that? You know, so you just fought, you get a couple weeks off and then they throw another one at you, like impossible on paper. It's neat to write down all these phases, but in the real, oh, and how do you periodize it that then he went to sparring that day, got kicked in the thigh and it's leg day, but now he can't bend down and it's not leg day anymore, you know? So it's, you know, so there's the, the idea of periodization itself. I love it, but when you're training with martial artists and mixed martial artists, it, you have to follow it loosely, if that makes sense. So if I knew I had eight weeks and I knew the guy wasn't going to get injured and we'd already gone in with a strength base, of course, we're going to convert some of that to speed and power as we move. But it's not so like this day, you know, it's not so mini cycle, macro cycle, which everybody loves to go over. But I think you still need to know and understand all that stuff. But, uh, but Again, I guess I'm giving everybody the real world take on it. It's uh, it's not always how it goes, right? So that would, I guess, that would be my answer. Is well, it depends? <laughs> right? It depends. Yeah, yeah, uh, brilliant. Um, what we do? I'm just going to ask a couple of uh, closing questions. So, pretty much just going into some words of advice. So you could offer some people in the fitness industry. Um, the fitness industry is some an incredible place, but it does have its faults. So uh, please excuse, uh, excuse a loaded question. So I was just wondering if you have any pet peeves in the fitness industry or if there's anything that you would like to see change. Um, I, wow. Yeah. And, and Hey, I wish I had more time to think it through, but here's what I would say. I, I am a zealot for fitness. You know, if anybody sees my Instagram page or Facebook, I call myself a fitness philosopher. And uh, I believe fitness is essential to health and life and longevity and, and not just physical health, but mental health as well. And uh, I guess my pet peeve would be uh, with the advent of social media, every person in order to get some likes or to even get noticed has to do things so extreme and in many ways so scary to the person that really needs it the most that we actually paralyze them and scare them away from fitness. So when I got involved in fitness in the 70s and 80s, you know, also, hey, my mother was a physical education teacher. My first, like, job, I, I like, cleaned benches in a, in, a, in a gym when I was, like, 16 years old. And uh, it, no one was afraid of the gym then. It was fun. And, like, no one was afraid of aerobics class and, and weightlifting. And now I think people are afraid. And I think many people in the fitness industry are contributing to both that fear and that confusion. So I wish everybody would just, like I try to do, make it simple, show it something everybody could do and show it something that they can have as part of their life. And uh, unfortunately, it's like we got to show crazy, you know, Turkish get-ups with friends in our hands, push-ups jumping off of buildings, you know, backflips off of whatever, or, or fail videos with people getting hurt and injured. And uh, yeah, we do it to attract attention, but we're probably scaring away the person that needs us the most. And now at this time when people, many have probably been sitting and drinking and eating wrong for too long over the last bunch of months, they need us more than ever. And I would rather fitness be a welcoming place than one of horror. And, uh, and that would be, I think, the thing that gets me the most is when I see someone share or put something up and I know that that 
is not reaching the person that they really want and, and in effect maybe scaring them away, like it breaks my heart because because uh, without if I didn't have fitness in my life, I wouldn't be who I was. And I don't want anyone to either be too scared or cheated from that by something just to get attention. So that would, hopefully that's a cool answer there. Yeah, I love that. Uh, to be honest with you, I think I'm going to try to clip some of that and actually put it on my uh, Instagram as a post <laughs> because I think yeah. that's um, a very important lesson. Very important lesson. Yeah. So, so one that I always say is, uh, yeah, how do we say it? So it's like, it, it, it would be two cool ideas that I use a lot is, is your Instagram, if I went to it, is it saying, look at me? Or is it saying, come with me? Like, you know, like, you know, like, like, Hey, I can help you. Which thing is it saying? And then the other one would be like, or is it, are you trying to impress someone or are you trying to progress that person forward in their fitness journey? And, uh, I would say most people are saying, look at me, I'm trying to impress you than they are. And, and like, like me, like me versus here, I'm here to help you, you know? And, uh, and I think it's a shift people need to make. Like you see my Instagram, every post, there's a real detailed written post that I spend a lot of time on that's only there to help somebody if they read it, you know? And my stuff isn't scary or intimidating. I don't want it to be that. I want it to be inviting and get someone interested in fitness and believe that they can do it. And uh, I don't know, a lot of the stuff that I see, you know, it doesn't, you know? As well as fitness influencers create, you know, creating uh, false uh imagery or paradigms you know like edited crazy edited photos or guys that are jacked out of their minds that are obviously not natural you're setting some crazy standard that somebody can't aspire to and then maybe they don't try it at all you know and uh and hey sometimes we glorify that and it's kind of interesting in sport in sport if a guy did that you'd call him a cheat and he'd and he'd get kicked out of the sport and never be in the hall of fame but as a movie star or a celebrity it's like we, we love it and it's as if we ignore it. So I think that's also interesting too, you know, that, uh, but, but hey, that's just my personal thing. But uh, for anybody listening, don't let that stuff intimidate you or think that that's what you have to aspire to or you can never be it or do it. I told you today, start with your next meal, start with your next sleep and just get those right. And if you come up long enough, something great can happen. It's not that hard right? You can, you know, it, it's actually way simpler than you think. Don't let it paralyze you by thinking it's not. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. That's, that's, um, yeah, I couldn't have asked for a better answer there. That was absolutely incredible. And you know, funny enough, I think, um, one of the recent guys I've had, um, on the podcast, I was talking to him about this and I remember going on my Instagram and somebody did that thing where they like 10 of your posts in the hope that you go and see their account and then you follow them. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I did, had a nose and this guy had shoulders out here. He was absolutely shredded. He was always in this super sunny place in the Mediterranean and he was scuba diving <laughs> with all this colorful fish. And I was thinking, well, I'm average. Um, but yeah, not the case really. But, you know, um, and I would like probably encourage people to actually look at, into what it takes to get there and to assume that that person was not there all year round and probably is taking the jungle juice and the deputy <laughs> has had cosmetic surgery. Um, <laughs> you know. He had, and he, and he had butt implants 
and a professional <laughs> photographer, and they shot those five years ago for the one week he was at 2% body fat. So yeah, so like what I like to do, if you look at my pages, I just, I show you where I am and you know, what I'm doing and, and how it goes, but, but hey, each to their own. I'm not saying if that's your passion and you want to chase it, chase it. What I'm talking is for the bigger mission and the fitness industry should be out there to really help people and change people and, and extend their lives and let them lead happier, healthier lives for their family. And that is why we're doing it. So we cannot lose sight of that. And if everything, anything that we do that we try to contribute that scares people away from that, then, uh, then we're the antithesis of fitness. And that was more what I was talking about there too. But, but yeah, and, I, and I'm sure all that stuff, you know, when you get provocative topics that creates firestorms of stuff, but hey guys, again, that was just my opinion. Everybody's allowed to have theirs. And, uh, but it, you know, so that, you know, that was my take on that answer. Yeah, um, absolutely loved it. Um, the next thing I would ask, I suppose, other than coach to coach, what books have you most recommended to your fellow coaches? Wow. Well, an interesting thing, and this is, uh, I'll, I'll give the, you know, I guess the long answer again. I've been reading, like, just like I've been writing, I've been reading for the last 25 years too. I read about, you know, I'm already over 80 books this year. So I keep a tally of it. It's all, my shelves are very categorized. My library is my trophy case. And uh, now, so it's over 2000 books strong on that library. And uh, what I always say is to recommend a book to someone, you're taking a big leap. You're, you're making them invest their money. You're making them invest their time. And it may not be the book that they need right then. For instance, I've gone back and read certain books 10 years later. And you know what's interesting? I'm not the same guy that read it. So I got something very different. So I like to always talk to a person first about where are they? What have they read? What, what do they want? What are they looking for? And then once I understand that, I can make a best recommendation of where I believe they should either start or a genre or an area of books uh, where they should begin. Because on my shelves, you know, hey, that would be like saying, again, I would say it depends. Do they want to read about martial arts? Do they want to read about finance? Do they want to read biography? Do they want to read about adventure? Do they want to read about business? Do they want to read about marketing or sales, uh, you know, fitness? And all of a sudden, I could give you 20 books in that genre, in each of those genre and bury them, you know, in years worth of reading. So, but that being said, some, uh, uh, probably the easiest classic ever you know, because there are some still that I think everyone should just read. And one that I always say that's always a go-to is How to Win Friends and Influence People by, uh, by Dale Carnegie. And again, the original edition, because it was written so long ago and it's old, uh, you got to take it with a grain of salt. I know they have updated versions, but it's just like if you could just apply the ideas, you'll be better. And, and it's funny because coach to coach, I tried to make it something like that, something that you, when you read it, you're just going to be better. I, I call it like the Hippocratic Oath for coaches. So if you call yourself a coach, there's no way you shouldn't read this book because it's just going to tell you what it means and, and give you direction on where you should go next. And uh, definitely that would be one book that I have always, that just always jumps out and I recommend that no matter where you are, it's a great one to read or it's a great place to start. Or even if you've read a thousand books, dig into it again. So that would be my answer on that. But, but the overall answer would be you should be reading. And, uh, you know, I usually have two to three books going at a time. Interesting, right now I'm reading a great book by Eric Larson called The Splendid and the Vile about Churchill and his uh, 
one year, his first year of being prime minister from May 10th to May 10th about how he, you know, and this should be close to your guy's heart of how he inspired and coached, if you will, uh, that island you guys are all on over there to not fold or we'd all be speaking German right now. And, uh, and I just have, I have read so much on Churchill and Teddy Roosevelt and certain leaders. And I just want to see who they were and how they were and what they did. And already I'm getting some great stuff from that. But I'm also reading a book by the goalie of the 1980 U.S. Olympic team and how they built team. And it's really cool. And uh, what's the other, uh, you know, and I'm reading a book, uh, a man called Ove, which is more like fun and fiction by a writer from Sweden. So it's like, I almost create my own curriculum. Like I'm in university at all time. It's very eclectic, but I'm always growing. And then those always build uh, my library deeper. So uh, I would just challenge everybody. Hey, who you are and will become a function also of a lot of who you know and what you've read. And if you haven't really read much, uh, you should start doing it. And the only way I was able to write coach to coach is I had to read a thousand books first before I ever wrote one, you know? So, uh, you know, if anybody aspires to that too, you know, the greatest writers in the world, will all tell you, you want to be a great writer. You got to be a great reader first. So, uh, I subscribe to that wholeheartedly. Oh, brilliant. Um, so the last one, what advice would you offer a trader who, let's say, is potentially midway through his career? So again, probably a selfish question, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, what would you say to a guy in South Wales that's kind of midway in his career, wearing a black T-shirt with an iPod? That, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what was the question? Just advice for that guy? Yeah, so... Um, Obviously, at the moment, I just feel that there's a lot of information that is out there, either for, well, that's usually catered to the, be to the beginner in uh, either the strength and conditioning or the personal trainer space. But I feel most people get lost when they've been in it a couple of years. They're trying to, let's say, maintain their passion, but they don't know where to progress further. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, again, and I think we already hit this, we, this would be a perfect place to end. Um, I think it's always time to revisit like, cause you already said the passion, but what is really the passion? So for instance, you said something before we even started the conversation, cause we were talking about your audience and it was like, Hey, you know, I thought it was fitness, but there's a lot of martial arts involved. And you said something important. Maybe you didn't realize it. And you said, and that's my niche, you know? And so what I would say is I would throw that question back to everyone is what is your niche and niche meaning, or if you say niche, whichever way people like to say it, um, it's kind of like, what's your interest? What's your passion? What is that one little thing that you're focused on that you'd like to pursue better than anyone else? And I think that's the thing that people miss. If you say you're in fitness, that's not a niche. That's an, a genre. That's an area. That's an industry. That's a profession. But if you said, hey, I like geriatric fitness, or I like fitness for combat sports, or I like fitness for uh, people who have overcome cancer. Hey, now you have a niche. And like now, if you become the leader in that niche and that expert in that niche and you're chasing it with your passion, you're probably going to help more people than just being a general practitioner. And so what I would do is where we started today is where we'll finish is everybody's got to ask, what is that passion? You know, what keeps you up at night? What would you love to study? Who do you want to be? And I challenge you to go chase it because if you don't, man, the generalist, like here will be an example. Who, who makes, you know, not, not just that money is a measuring stick, but 
I think the best brain surgeon in the world makes more than the than a top general practitioner of medicine. And why? Because that guy has specialized in something he's so passionate about that the world will find him, you know, and uh, or her. And uh, I don't know. So I guess I like that idea of like, man, your passion will shine through. And if you can figure out that niche and how it helps people, not only will you win by doing what you love, but, but other people will win by getting the best you because you chased that passion and did your greatest thing. So it's kind of a double there. So that would be my advice is to always look deep and like, and know this and the passions will change. My passion was speed training for kids. And then my passion was training pro athletes. Then my passion was fighters. And now my passion is like, it's adult fitness for say the 35 to 55 year old and how we can change that, especially in this time of this virus. And, uh, and so as your passions change, so will the things that you study and, and pursue. But each time I changed that passion, I was helping more people. And, uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, uh, it's been an interesting thing, but that would be my advice, I guess, to really always go and take a deep look at that again. Oh, incredible. Um, that about wraps up the episode. Thank you so much <laughs> for coming. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, hey, my pleasure. And for everybody listening, if you liked us, let us know about it. And the best way, uh, hey, for anybody to find me, check out either the Mark Rooney on Instagram or my Facebook page. And I'm, I'm telling everybody, I promise, if you get Coach to Coach, you will not regret it. It'll be the best book you've read in a while. And, uh, and, and I would love to hear from everybody about what they thought of it uh, after they read it too. And they can reach me at martin at coachinggreatness.com to let me know about it and I'll always write back. So, you know, hey, hopefully everybody is staying safe and well. We're coming out of this thing soon. I, pr- I know that too. And we're going to come back in fitness and martial arts and everything else stronger than ever. So uh, my pleasure to share today and I hope it inspired somebody. Awesome. Thank you so much. Cheers. Okay, people, that completely wraps up today's episode. So please check out coach to coach head over to Amazon. You can download it in audio format as well as getting a hard copy. Thanks for listening, everyone. Catch up with you soon.